0: Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 49 of the podcast. Today we're talking about the Star Trek Discovery episode, There is a Tide. And Happy New Year. By now, the whole world should have switched over to 2021. It's been a good year so far. No major tragedies. Of course, much of the world is still suffering the effects of that pandemic that turned the world upside down last year. I'm really lucky here in Tasmania. We don't have any cases at the moment. The description on Memory Alpha reads, After capturing the USS Discovery, Osiris seeks a meeting with Admiral Vance, while Burnham and the crew must overcome unimaginable odds as they attempt to regain command of their ship. This episode was written by Kenneth Lin. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and it first aired on the 31st of December 2020. Make it so. After I upload each episode of Nerd Heaven, I go and check out what other YouTubers and podcasters are saying about the episode. It's interesting to compare notes. And see where we agree and disagree. I never watch them before I finish my own review, because I want to keep my opinions my own, as uninfluenced by others as I can. But I noticed the thumbnail of one last night that said, Die hard in space. And that's not a bad way to describe this week's episode. It's an action movie, with Michael Burnham trying to rescue the hostage crew of Discovery from terrorists who have taken over the ship. Last week, we learned the cause of the burn was basically a shockwave sent from a kelpian genetically modified from living on a radiation-soaked planet having a tantrum. The general consensus from people was, is that it? I didn't really comment much about it, other than my relief that Michael Burnham wasn't the cause. Although, I also saw a thumbnail with a the depressing theory that she indirectly is responsible because she freed the kelpians from the Ba'ul. But Let's just leave that one aside. Now I wanted to wait until this week to learn more before I said too much about my thoughts on it. Except we never revisited the planet in the Verubian Nebula in this entire episode. The whole thing was centred on Discovery and Starfleet headquarters. I wasn't expecting that. So we'll talk more about The Burn next week. This week's episode, in addition to giving us a pretty cool action thriller, also does some very interesting things with Osiris' character, which I'm looking forward to talking about. But let's start at the beginning. Osiris is playing a dirty trick. She has her own ship, the Viridian, firing on Discovery to make it look as though the two ships are locked in combat, and that the Discovery crew are still in control of their own ship. Vance is hesitant to let Discovery in through the shields immediately. I guess that to lower the shields would be to potentially allow the Viridian in as well. We actually get a decent amount of Vance in this episode. He's doing much more than just giving Discovery their mission. And that was great. The bridge crew are being held in the mess hall. That seems to be the standard procedure when you take over a Starfleet ship. It's always the mess hall. Remember Zara from episode 2 of this season? He was the thug that broke into the pub and terrorised the local township. The bartender threw him out into the ice to survive if he could. Well, it turned out he worked for the emerald chain. And he survived. He's here now, Osiris second in command for this mission. Poor Tilly isn't happy to see him again. This episode makes a couple of references to Tilly's ineptitude, which led to the ship's capture. A lot of it comes from Zara, who was already trying to belittle her back at the beginning of the season. To be honest, this is fair. Don't get me wrong, Tilly performed admirably for an ensign put into the big chair during a very difficult situation, but I'm sure the chain took over quicker and easier than they would have if there had been an experienced captain in charge. No shame against Tilly for that. For the first time, we actually see some point to the morphing thing that Book's ship does. They're travelling through a transwarp conduit, and we finally get an understanding of why they're considered so dangerous. They're full of debris from other ships. Book's vessel is constantly morphing into different shapes to avoid hitting all this stuff. Okay, that actually makes sense. Nice to finally get answers to two outstanding mysteries in this scene. Strangely, there's a big ship in the way. Book says, there's no morphing our way around that. And then, the ship morphs its way around that. (laughs) Vance is going to have to let Discovery in before their shields fail, so he orders a window just large enough for that ship but orders security on alert. Something is weird with all of this, and then Book's ship arrives. But Michael can't get through to Federation HQ for some reason and is unable to warn them. So Discovery is let in. Michael decides the only hope now is to board Discovery. So Book's ship morphs again into a long, thin kind of shape. At first, I thought they were forming into a breaching pod, something that could pierce the hull. That would make sense. But then I realise, as usual, Discovery's shuttle bay doors are open and they just have the force field in place. So, forming into a sharp thin shape allows the ship to get through the force field? I find that harder to buy. And in fact, these force fields are generally designed to hold in oxygen but allow shuttles to pass through. So, why would they need to do anything special to get through anyway? Osiris mentioned something about them getting in while Discovery's shields are down, which does make sense. Shields should prevent anything from getting into the shuttleway. But why Discovery's shields down? Maybe to allow the tractor beam to pull them in? But why the need for a tractor beam? Discovery has thrusters. It's all a bit messy. But let's move on. This is where we meet Aurelio. He's a scientist working for the Emerald Chain. One of the best in the galaxy, apparently. He's confined to a hover chair because of a genetic defect he has. It's another little element to add some interest to his character. And it's nice to see people of different abilities on the show. The interesting thing here is that Aurelio is played by Kenneth Mitchell, who played Cole in season 1, and then Cole's father in season 2, as well as the child of Vok and Laurel. He's fast becoming the new Jeffrey Combs. In fact, he's now played just as many distinct Trek roles as Combs did. But this is his first non-Klingon role. But what I didn't realise while I was watching is that Kenneth Mitchell is currently suffering from motor neuron disease, and is confined to a wheelchair. And that's really sad. My heart goes out to him. But isn't it nice that they are able to create this character for him to play? I love how Book's first priority when getting back on board Discovery is to find and secure his cat. He went all the way to sick bay, and then all the way back down to the shuttle bay. A little far-fetched, perhaps, but cute. Book has a life sign masking device, which Michael can use to get around the ship undetected. He has to turn himself in because they'll be expecting a pilot for the ship that just breached them. With some luck, they won't even know Michael is on board. And there's a nice little moment when they say I love you to each other. This relationship has played out so much better and more naturally than the Tyler relationship in season 1. Even though Michael wasn't able to warn Vance, he figures it out himself. Which is good. It shows that he's got some brains on his shoulders. Michael makes her first kill, but gets a knife in her leg for her trouble. I like this. It's showing that she's a capable fighter, but she's not Superman. She takes the regulator's badge, but it won't transport. Probably coded to his bioscience. But why does she need his badge to transport? She has her own Starfleet insignia badge on her uniform. Why can't you transport with that? Certainly no reason I can think of. Osara hails HQ and Vance chats with her. She's releasing all the Discovery crew except the bridge crew, who she's keeping as leverage, but keeping them in good health. She's here to talk and hopes that things will go well. If so, Vance will have the bridge crew back shortly. This is an unexpected development. We were expecting invasion, not negotiation. Michael is hiding out in a Jefferies tube. At first, I was confused about the phaser she was using. Did she get it off the regulator she killed? It seemed holographic, projected by a wristband. Turns out, this is the new Starfleet phaser, as seen in the opening credits. This is what the Discovery crew use now. But they don't have holsters. The phasers are constructed from programmable matter. They just wear a little thing on their wrist. This is really cool. I'm surprised the com badge doesn't create the phaser. Actually, it does everything else. There's a nice moment where Michael records a touching goodbye message to her mother, as she knows this may well be the end. I wouldn't be surprised if Gabrielle shows up with the cavalry next week. I like that Asira calls out the absence of the Federation president. The type of negotiations that she's about to enter into really should include the Federation president. This has been an issue in the past for Star Trek. How many decisions did Cisco make on behalf of the entire Federation that really should have been above the pay grade of a captain? Vance explains that to have the president sit down with a known terrorist at this time would be a security breach, which makes perfect sense, so he's been authorised to negotiate on behalf of the Federation. He's Starfleet chief of staff, so he's pretty high up there, and he's not gonna make the final decision. Nicely done. I like the scene where the bridge crew overcome their guards. They work together anticipating each other's ideas, with the distraction of the morse code tapping. It shows these people have worked together for a long time now. They know each other well and make a good team. Tilly immediately takes charge, again doing the best she can under the circumstances. Zara has been able to locate the intruder with the badge that she took from the regulator, whose death has now been discovered. Aurelio wakes Stamets so that they can discuss the spore drive. They bond over opera music, which Stamets has slowly come to appreciate because Kolba loves it. Stamets identifies that Aurelio has children, and that his partner is Orion, based on the traditional piercing behind his ear. And Stamets admits that he has a child too. Adira. At this point, I'm speculating that Aurelio is actually Osiris' husband. She was acting very protective of him at the beginning of the episode. They seemed to have a personal connection. The episode never says it outright, but I think it is strongly implied. What do you think? We learn that sadly, the tardigrades are long extinct in the 32nd century. Unless Stamets is lying to Aurelio. But Aurelio thinks that he can grow new tardigrade cells from Stamets' DNA, thereby allowing other people. To be able to navigate the mycelial network. Michael takes out her second regulator, in another thrilling action movie sequence. It's not just a fight scene. It makes good use of the fact that they are in space. It's a triumphant moment, although I suspect that Michael should be facing more unpleasant consequences from the cold alone when the tube was exposed to open space. I like how they have an EMH serve as a lie detector during negotiations a standard procedure. So far, Asira is being very truthful. She wants the emerald chain to unite with the federation, in peace. And she's being genuine. Her reasoning is that the chain can't go on the way they are without Dilithium. She realises she has to make changes to how her organisation works if it is going to survive. The spore drive is a big bargaining chip. So why does she need the federation? The federation was always a symbol of hope. The emerald chain will never earn the trust of the people like the federation once did. What the chain needs now, most of all, is legitimacy. Remote parts of the former federation who no longer have contact with headquarters are already engaging in trade with the chain, because they have no choice. This is interesting stuff. A fruit platter is brought in and Vance mentions that their replicated food is made from human faeces. But he doesn't say faeces. That's the base material they use in their replicators. They break it down to the atomic level, and then reform the atoms. And this, of course, is a total load of, well, faeces. That's not how replicators work. Replicators work on a similar principle to transporters. It's all based around the conversion between energy and matter. Replicators don't create matter from other base matter. They convert energy into matter. And then when you recycle the leftovers, that matter is turned back into energy. They don't stick base matter into the things. This might have been the case for the more primitive food synthesizers back in the 22nd century, but not the 24th century onwards. Modern Star Trek has a real problem with replicators. In Picard, they looked like 3D printers. They even built up the food layer by layer like a 3D printer. But it's not how it's supposed to work. and. This annoys me. The emerald chain apparently don't use replicator technology. I'm not sure why. I mean, you don't need dilithium to power a replicator. Dilithium is just a catalyst in creating the matter-antimatter reaction in a starship's warp core. Asira wants trade with the chain legalised, and she wants to establish an embassy at Starfleet headquarters. This will send a powerful message. This is a big issue for Vance. The emerald chain engage in morally reprehensible acts. Slavery, oppression, interference with pre-warp civilizations. Surprisingly, Osira is making changes to the way the chain operates. She's outlawing slavery. She's even pulling back from worlds like kwa at considerable financial expense, over a 15-year period to prevent causing chaos. She's even got an armistice written up, a treaty, that the Federation president can sign. And Eli, the EMH, confirms she is being completely genuine about all this. This is very interesting to me. This is taking Osirah from being a moustache twirling villain to something much more interesting. She is now by far the most interesting villain we've had on Discovery. Now she has depth. She's still very dangerous. But she's a reasonable woman who is willing to make significant changes for the good of her people. I'm kinda loving this. Aurelio seems to have a very rosy-coloured view of Osira and the chain. He's surprisingly blind to the horrific things that she's done. Stamets tries to open his eyes to the reality of it all. Vance is impressed with the armistice. Osira has made a lot of concessions. She really is wanting to plot a new course for the chain. One free from the immoral acts of the past. But Vance needs more. He can't just ignore the past. So he asks Osira, who will be the public face of the chain for this alliance. The implication is that it can't be Osira. She's a known terrorist and criminal, not somebody that the Federation can legitimise. As soon as he asks that question, I think Osira is reasonably sure that a deal is not going to be reached. She wants to be the public face of the emerald chain, or at least be the controlling power in the background. But Vance wants her to give herself up for trial for the crimes of her past. Vance can't just forgive the crimes of the past. He can't just overlook it. Osira says, the past can't be undone, and Vance says, but it can be made right. This is a very interesting dilemma, and I'm curious where people sit on this. On the one hand, Osira has made a genuine commitment to change her ways from now on. And since the burn, the Federation hasn't had completely clean hands. They've done their best to continue living the ideals that they have always represented. But this is a messier universe than it once was. Maybe the concessions Osaira is making are worth wiping the slate clean and forgiving the crimes of the past. On the other hand, Osira may have made some promises regarding policy. Promises that I believe she's willing to honour. But at her core, her values haven't changed. She's offering to be good not because she's had a change of heart or any true repentance. But out of a political necessity. This will be confirmed at the end of the episode, where we see what kind of person she really is deep down. Vance asks his people to die for Federation moral values on a daily basis, but how can he ask that of them, and then just forgive Osira with no consequences for her crimes? So what do you think? Should Vance just accept the armistice and let go of the past, or is he right to push for this? And what about Osaira? Is she letting her pride talk her out of a deal that would be good for her people? The Federation has a very just legal system and quite humane and generous treatment of the convicted. The penal colony in New Zealand, where Tom Paris did his time, looked like a beautiful paradise. Asara could do worse than to accept punishment for her crimes for the sake of her people, and live out a comfortable life as a federation convict. It's funny, but I see a lot of theological parallels here that connect with me on a spiritual level. It's these deep and interesting ideas that make this a really great episode of Star Trek. Sadly, these two can't find any common ground on this issue, so the negotiations break down, and Osira returns to Discovery, where Book and Rin have been captured. Michael arrives to rescue Stamets, but Michael and Stamets have a profound disagreement on how to proceed. Michael wants to get Stamets off the ship. The emerald chain can't be allowed to learn the secrets of the spore drive from him. So he needs to be removed. But he wants to jump straight back to the nebula to rescue Hugh and Saru. And then he learns that Adira is there as well. As he says, my whole life is in that nebula. It's wonderfully acted. So much raw emotion. Michael admits that they'll likely die back there, but she has to make the tough call. True to her word, she told Vance that she'd never hesitate again, like she did with Arium. And she renders Stamets unconscious. Asyra asks Aurelio to leave the bridge. She doesn't want him to see what she's about to do. But he wants to stay. Stamets' words have impacted him. He wants to see who she really is when he's not around. Rin gives a nice speech about how he's no longer afraid of Osaira because he's seen real bravery. It's great. He won't fix the sensors so that she can locate Michael, Stamets and the bridge crew. So she's about to shoot him. But in a potentially foolish attempt to save Rin's life, Book volunteers information about the Dilithium planet in the nebula, so that's where Saru is. But then she kills Rin anyway. And Aurelio is watching. She's going to get the information from Book using a truth serum. Michael has to put Stamets into an emergency escape field. She's going to eject him out of the ship so Federation HQ can rescue him, getting him away from Osira's grasp. He begs Michael not to do this. Without him on board, Discovery, Hugh, Saru and Adira will die a horrible death. Michael has put Stamets into an emergency escape field. She's going to eject him out of the ship so Federation HQ can rescue him, get him away from Osiris grasp. He begs Michael not to do this. Without him on board Discovery, Hugh, Saru and Adira will die a horrible death. It's a heartbreaking scene, and it is so well acted by Anthony Rapp. He reminds her that the Discovery crew gave up everything to follow her here into the future so she wouldn't have to be here alone. They did that for her. And now, she's going to let those three die. She's doing this to save the Federation from being destroyed by Osyraa. So many hard choices being made in this episode. Michael has been captured, but she's accomplished what she set out to do. The bridge crew have armed themselves and are ready to retake the ship. Tilly is being pretty awesome. And then the DOT robots show up, possessed by the sphere data otherwise known as Zora. It's hard to take these robots seriously, as they look so cute. But despite that, it's a great ending to the episode. They have a cool new ally. Who'd have thought when we first saw the sphere data back in early season 2, they'd be paying it off like this. This wasn't just a great episode of Discovery. This was a great episode of Star Trek. I loved it. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how it all resolves next week in the season finale. Next week's episode is called That Hope Is You Part 2, calling back to the very first episode of the season. Interesting. I wonder if that name will stay. A lot of these episodes have been getting new names from what was originally announced. It was cool to see Zara come back this week, but you know who we haven't seen since episode 1? That I really expected to be a recurring character throughout the whole season? That lone federation representative serving faithfully on that outpost. I'm disappointed we never saw him again. Is he still there? Has Discovery even mentioned him to Vance? But with next week's episode's title making it a direct sequel to that first episode, I'm wondering if this is where we'll see him again. I'd be interested to find out. I'm still doing my walk to Mordor challenge that I started in April last year. I've passed the gates of Moria, and I'm now back at work on Jewel of the Stars book three and I'm looking forward to getting it out in the world when I can. It's hard to believe that there's only one more episode of Discovery to talk about this season. We'll be launching into Stargate Universe very soon. I've already recorded a couple of episodes. I hope you'll stick around for that. I'm looking forward to it. But first, I'll see you next week for the season finale of Star Trek Discovery. Have a wonderful week. Live long and prosper. Make it so.